Happy work, happier life. Thomas here from Happier with Renee Conklin, founder of RCHR Consulting, ex-UBS and Barclays recruiter, career coach, and HR consultant. Today we discussed how to position yourself for the career that you want, how to get into finance jobs, and what is and how to beat the ATS. So if you're interested, tune in for this podcast. So thank you so much, Renee, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you give a quick intro to yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Renee Conklin. I'm the founder of RCHR Consulting. My background is in HR and recruitment. So I spent about the last 15 years or so working in large multinational investment banks. So I started my career in the U.S., as you can probably tell from my accent, I am American. So I was based in New York, and then I was working at UBS, which is a Swiss investment bank. And they asked me to move to Hong Kong for nine months. And then 13 years later, here I am still. Um, Hong Kong sort of just got under my skin and decided not to leave, as happens to many expats. So I spent some time with UBS and then also six and a half years with Barclays, which is a British investment bank. Mm -hmm. And then as the head of HR at a fintech, a Hong Kong headquartered fintech here as well. And then about two years ago, I set up my own HR consulting company, which is called RCHR Consulting. And we work with SMEs Mm. around their talent attraction and employee engagement initiatives. And I also work as a career coach uh, with individuals as well. So that's a little bit about my background. Very cool. Before we go into the details about tips and advice for applying for these huge companies, uh, fintechs, which is very popular now with our applicants. Mm. Can you share a bit on how you ended up in Hong Kong and how you started RCHR Consulting? Sure. So I ended up in Hong Kong because my my company asked me to come out and do a nine-month assignment here. I was doing a role in the U.S. actually focused on graduate recruitment. So I was going around and you know visiting all the top universities and talking to students and and recruiting them to come in and work at UBS. And they asked me to come out and do essentially the same role here in Asia. And when I got here, I realized, although it was the same role, there were a lot of things that were very different about working in Asia. So I was managing the US strategy out of Hong Kong and then also the strategy in mainland China, Australia, and around the region. So it was a really steep learning curve for me. Uh, which actually is a good a good takeaway point, right? Sometimes even if you make a lateral move within a company, mm-hmm. um, you, sh- you should never assume that you know everything and there's still a lot to learn from the people around you within your team. Uh, so I, I struggled a little bit actually in my first few months in Hong Kong, just getting used to the culture, getting used to... Like One example is you know in the US at lunchtime, you know, everyone would just sort of go out, grab a salad and then come back and eat yep. your dusk and keep working. And in Hong Kong, obviously, it's completely opposite, right? Everyone disappears for two hours between 12 and 2. So I had actually scheduled a meeting at like 1 o'clock within my first few weeks with the COO. And oh, no. No one, no, one tu- <laughs> no one turned up for the meeting. And I was like, what is going on here? So there's just one one learning point, right, about different, different cultures. But yep. um, yeah, so that's how I came to Hong Kong. And then Around the time I was supposed to go back, my assignment kept getting extended, and then I met my husband here as well. And um, yeah, there was just sort of more upside to staying in Hong Kong versus going back to New York. So that's why I decided to stay. Um, Yeah, so that's a bit about why I decided to stay. And then in terms of setting up RCHR Consulting, there's a couple of reasons. I, I had the experience of working in both large organizations and then smaller SMEs. Mm-hmm. And I realized through that that there was a real need for more strategic commercial 
external HR advice, especially for these SMEs, because at SMEs, a lot of the time, the HR function is really focused on administration and -hmm. just doing things like making sure people are getting paid through payroll and making sure people have contracts, but they're not able to provide really strategic advice to the management around how to grow the business, how to attract talent, how to make sure employees are engaged and the impact of those things. Uh, so I saw a need there for that type of advice. Mm-hmm. And then also within the the coaching piece, I, you know, being a former recruiter, right, I spent several years at UBS and Barclays as a recruiter. I, I recognize the importance of people knowing and understanding, you know, how to position themselves appropriately for their career and also even prior to that, thinking about how they can find a career that they love to do. And for me, I, I came from a family where, you know, both of my parents did roles that they didn't like. Actually, they both had mm-hmm. jobs they didn't like. And my dad used to like come home and sit down at dinner and just complain the whole time about his coworkers. And my mom, she, she was a teacher, but she didn't like, you know, managing the classroom. The kids were very unruly and she yeah. just didn't, didn't enjoy it. And I think from that experience, I learned about how important it was to really do work that you love and to spend that time finding something that can be your passion. Um, and so that's why I was inspired to start doing more coaching. And I became a, a certified organizational coach uh, through IECL, which is an Australian organization. They're ICF certified. And I help people to focus on, again, finding what they're really passionate about, focusing on their strengths, and then also the more practical aspects of searching for a job. Right? So I call myself a very practical coach, mm. and I want to make sure that people have the tools that they need and can take away with them after a coaching engagement. So that's really focused on things like how to do their resume, how to optimize their LinkedIn profile, um, doing mock interview coaching, helping them with job search strategies, all these things that are really tactical um, that they can have to help them find the right role for them. I think we can definitely agree that happier work leads to happier life. Indeed. The name of the podcast. Yes, the name of the podcast. We didn't ask Renee or we didn't pay her to say that. She said it on just, her own. It's just natural. It just happens. <laughs> um, you mentioned positioning yourself for a career. Mm. I assume it's quite different when you're applying for UBS, Barclays versus a smaller fintech. Sure. Can you share more on how to best position yourself for any role you're going after? Sure. And is this targeted more toward graduates or just job seekers in general or do you have is there is there a big difference between both <laughs> can you go over both i um, guess well i think for graduates because you're you're coming out of school with you know a, a, a limited set of experiences and so it's all about how do you differentiate yourself right so there's basically three main buckets right you've got your experiences you've got your skills, and then you've got you and your personality and your strengths and the things that make you uniquely you. And with the experiences and skills, there might be a lot of other people that have those same or very similar things, right? So when I work with students in Hong Kong, everyone has their CFA level one, everyone has Mm -hmm. their degree in economics. And so how do you then differentiate yourself? It's that last piece of, oh, you're really passionate about CSR, or you started a you know started student government organization on campus, or you know whatever it is that differentiates you and your passion, that's what helps to get candidates over the line, mm-hmm. um, particularly when they're searching for their first job. Um, it's I guess it's it's similar as well for a more experienced candidate, but of course 
if you're a more experienced candidate, then you've got a lot more work experience to to talk about um, in terms of your profile. So it's thinking about how you capture the achievements that you have achieved during your during your career and how you talk about those things and how that helps to to differentiate you as a candidate. You mentioned, you know, talking about starting student government association. Mm. Does it matter that it has nothing to do with what they want to do career-wise? So if I'm applying for finance fintech jobs, mm. but I started student government association, should I still include that in my CV? I think you should still so it depends what it is, but I you should still include for this example, student government, because that demonstrates leadership. Okay. And in most roles, they're looking for someone who can demonstrate leadership, who can look after a team, even if it's a even if it's an internship or even if it's a graduate role, there'll still be option op- opportunities for you to lead. Right. Okay. Um, but I think if you're looking for a role in fintech, then you probably want to include some things that are more applicable to that space, right? Whether it's the coding languages that you know, whether it's mm. your a member of the Hong Kong Fintech Association or something that's slightly more related to show that you're really dedicated to be in that field. Okay, now jumping into finance fintech, um, you were recruited for UBS, for Barclays, and for fintech. Um, what does it take to get into UBS and Barclays? <laughs> um, I think it's it's shifted a lot over the past couple of years. And I think, you know, this year in particular, it's been very challenging, uh, especially for folks looking for you know internships or graduate positions, just because of the impact of COVID. A lot of the banks have decided to host their internships virtually, uh, which has been challenging for people, um, or to cut back the programs, right? Reduce them from ten weeks to six weeks, and all these other types of things. What does it take to get in? I think so. I'll, I'll tell you what, what it really takes, right? So, <laughs> so most of the banks will tell you that. They are open to, you know, taking people from cross-discipline, right? So if you majored in biology or you majored in English literature, uh, but realistically, they really want people with the hard skills, right? So they really want people who've majored in in economics, in, um, you know, corporate finance or, you know, any of the more sort of more, or finance, excuse me, not corporate finance, any of the sort of more technical aspects of the job is really what they're looking for mm-hmm. uh, because all the banks have these sort of training programs where they sort of try to bring everyone up to the same level. Um, but realistically, those who haven't had that solid foundation skills building will struggle and they'll find themselves kind of falling back. So the banks want diversity. They say they want diversity. They do try. Mm-hmm. But realistically, if you look at that group of people after 12 to 24 months, it's really all the folks who, you know, folk had finance and economics degrees that are still there and still successful. Or if it's, you know, within an IT role, you know, computer science, et cetera. So the, so the discipline is one. Um, they want to see that you've got some strong work experience, right? So some strong internship experience as well. And so, yeah, I often get this question of like, well, how do I get my first internship? And so it's it's around you're tapping your network. And I know if you're 20, it's like, well, what network do I really have? It's your, it's your classmates, right? So at the universities in Hong Kong, a lot of your classmates are, you know, they might be part of some quite substantial family businesses. Uh, They might have some connections, you know, just within their, their families that, you know, can help you to, to find your first role, your first internship. Um, So having that kind of varied work experience is really helpful also. And then also I think, the the kind of more extracurricular aspects, right? So the leadership roles that you hold on campus, or if it's community um, 
aspects in terms of volunteering and things like that, those are the things that, as I mentioned, set you apart. So I think all of those things um, are critical. I know in the U.S., people place a lot of importance on volunteering, but is mm. that the case in Hong Kong? I think it's less so in Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, I think there's still really a focus on academics, mm-hmm. right? So I didn't mention, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just a given that you have to have really strong academics and have a strong GPA. So most of the banks will will generally want people to have a GPA that's 3.5 or above. I think that's flexible depending on which business area you're looking to apply to, uh, but still having really strong academics is is important always. So a huge question we had on our fintech versus banking um, webinar mm-hmm. a few weeks ago was does my major does my major matter mm. and so you mentioned that of course they say we take everybody from everywhere but realistically yeah. obviously they focus on the ones with the hard skills but have you ever encountered that one biology person who made it in finance of course the, there's always the there's always the person that succeeds right so actually one of the one of the bankers i really enjoyed working with when i was at barclays was was both a managing director, so an MD, oh, wow. and also an MD, a doctor. Wow! Uh, so he, you know, he clearly came from a very different path in terms of his education, um, but he was, you know, well rounded in that he had, um, you had experience doing both. So yeah, of course, there's always examples of people who are successful, you know, regardless of what their background is. But those individuals need to work that much harder to sort of get up to speed. So do you have any advice for those people who are studying non-finance related majors who still want to end up in banking? What do they have to do to really upskill themselves, make them more competitive as a non-traditional major? Sure. There's a lot of opportunities for them to do sort of additional training Mm -hmm. on campus. So a lot of the schools will offer sort of like these boot camps. Right, so training the street is one of the big ones for for banking to help you to improve your like modeling skills in various other aspects of working in banking. Um, that's the way to demonstrate that that's really what you want to do is to do some additional training, whether it's these sort of boot camps or it's some sort of online coding if you want to move into an IT role. Um, trying to do something that's a little bit more specialized that will complement your degree. Speaking on tech, you work a lot with. Or you share a lot with how tech impacts job searches recently. Yeah. Can you go more into detail about that? Yeah, sure. So this is one of my my favorite topics that I talk about a lot because, <laughs> because when I work with clients, I am always really shocked at how few of them know about this. But my my whole thing is that, you know, technology has made it easier to look for a job, mm-hmm. but harder to actually find one. Oh wow, that's yeah. interesting. So easier to look for a job, but harder to actually find one. And the reason is, is because you've got you know platforms like Happier and you know many other job boards out there, so you can see the full spectrum of the opportunities that are out there. But a lot of candidates don't realize and don't know about applicant tracking systems or ATS. And I spend a lot of my time, especially when we're going through the resume reviews, I'm helping candidates to make sure that their resumes are optimized to help them get through the applicant tracking system so that they can get in for an interview. And this is important, you know, even for for your sort of target audience for around, sure. um, you know, graduate applications as well. Yeah, we had a sales simulation yesterday and I was pretending to be an HR person from some bank. Okay. One of my sales interns. Yeah. I was like, oh, do you integrate with our ATS system? Or ATS um, application, they're like, wait, what's an ATS? <laughs> so what exactly is an ATS for those that aren't 
familiar with this term. Yeah, and I really like your example because one of my, I had a very similar conversation with one of my friends recently who's he's been working for you know 25 years and he's looking for a job and he's like what is what is this ATS thing he's like surely they've they weren't using it 10 years ago and i was like no it's been around <laughs> for a long time so it's not just fresh graduates um so an ATS is a an automated um, recruitment tracking system that is used by actually 98% of fortune 500 companies use an ATS and even smaller companies, so medium-sized companies, 66% are using them, and small companies, 35%. And that's because the technology around an ATS has actually gotten cheaper over time. A lot of them are now cloud-based, yeah. um, so they're much easier for companies to use. A lot of them have a more flexible pricing model um, so that companies can use them. But they're, they're a piece of automated recruiting software that essentially scans your resume and pulls the resume into the system in their own pre-designated format, and then uses algorithms to decide which candidates are the best match for the role. And the way they do that is by looking at the keywords in your resume and matching them against the keywords in the job description and seeing how close of a match there is. And most of these algorithms will then return some sort of sort of match score. They say this candidate you know, is a 70% match to this mm -hmm. role. And what will happen is if a recruiter, so if I'm the in-house recruiter and I'm sitting there looking at the back end of my recruitment system, um, I might have 100 applications for a specific role, but the ATS has told me that only these top 10 people are a good fit for the role. So I'll only look at those 10 CVs and the remaining 90 I'll never look at. I'll just send them a rejection email. Wow, that's a bit harsh. What happens if there's one in there that's really good, but they just didn't understand the ATS? Then I guess they're out of luck there. So it's more than likely that that person's resume won't be reviewed. And that's why when I work with clients, a lot of them come to me after months of looking for a new job and applying for jobs online and feeling like they're not getting anywhere and feeling like they're just hitting a wall. And then I might say to them, well, what, you know, are you optimizing your resume for the ATS? Are you customizing it for every single job you're applying for? And yeah, it's the same conversation. They don't even know what an ATS is. I think even some institutions and universities use this to select the people to come in, like the students incoming mm. classes as well, from what I heard, at least in the States. Um, so the million dollar question, how do you beat the ATS? So there's a lot of, a lot of different things that people need to remember to do um, to try to beat the ATS. And there's actually a lot of content online. Um, and same, same with even writing resumes, right? There's a lot of content online that people can find. Um, so hopefully this will just be a useful primer. Um, but for beating the ATS, there's, there's a lot of do's and don'ts. So around the do's, the first is to have a really clean, simple resume layout and format. So that means no pictures, no graphics, no Pinterest templates. This is what I say, right? There's a <laughs> lot of really cool, funky looking resume templates you can download online. You know, they're $2 or whatever, and you can just, you know, send in your information. And they'll format everything for you. But those are really the death knell for the ATS. So stay, stay far away from those. So the, the very sort of traditional, you know, kind of black and white, you know, um, clear, don't use any columns, um, don't use any text boxes, all of those things can cause problems with the ATS. And then one major do for people is to make sure that you're really including a lot of keywords in your resume 
that match up to the job description. Okay, that's definitely good to know. You also mentioned no photos. Mm-hmm. I've noticed coming to Asia that a lot of people still include photos in their CVs, mm. which in other countries like US might be illegal in some places. Right. What What are your thoughts on that? Is it okay to include photos sometimes? And do you reject a CV with the photo? Because I've received quite a few with photos as well. So I, if the CV made its way to me, I wouldn't necessarily reject it because it has a photo. But in addition to photos being a problem with the ATS, right? So a lot of ATS systems are not sophisticated enough to actually recognize the photo, right? They'll just recognize uh-huh. it as an object. Mm-hmm. And they the ATS will not have a place to pull that photo into its own format in the system. So it could cause an error. It could cause your resume to even be rejected. But But besides that... The other reason to not include your photo is because it leaves you open to potential bias mm. or discrimination. And you you might get rejected for the role and you may never know why, but mm. it could be because you're a woman or it could be because you're a man and you won't know because someone's looked at your resume or they might look at your photo and think, oh, this person looks a little bit too old for oh, this wow. job or oh, this, this woman is not pretty enough for this job. Right. So these are all kind of the unconscious bias that hiring managers and recruiters have. And these are this is a risk that you're putting yourself at as a candidate. So I always say, just leave it off as then you're removing that potential for any bias. Mm-hmm. That's a good tip. Um, I mean, we had a podcast previously with a salesperson. They were saying, you know, use all of your your advantages. Maybe it's because you're good looking. So would you advise someone who's good looking to include the photo on there? Would that help? Oh, uh, I, I, I can't agree with that statement. <laughs> I, I look, and I think, I think in Hong Kong, so you mentioned you still see a lot of resumes with photos. I see less, I think from mainland China, I still see quite a few and actually mm-hmm. from, from continental Europe, still see quite a few as well. But Hong Kong being a more international city, um, it's not as common. So I would, I I would always err on the side of caution and not include. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then, so we discussed what it takes to get into large banks and financial institutions, but what about, what about for fintech? Mm. Are are the tips different? Do you have to tailor how, do they also use ATS? Like what, what do we need to know for applying for fintechs? Yeah. I mean, it depends on how, how big they are, but yes, I think a lot of them are also still using ATS. I mean, the, the very easy way to know if a company is using ATS is if they ask you to apply via a link and you go in and you fill out what looks like an application versus if they ask you just to send your resume via email. If they're asking you to send your resume attached to an email, that's clearly not an ATS, right? So that's the very simple distinction. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think at a fintech, so when I was working in in a fintech, what I found is we we hired a lot of people from investment banks or people who had worked at, at large multinationals. And some of them succeeded, some of them struggled. And that was because... There's a really big mindset shift, you know, particularly if you're going to a place that's a little bit smaller around your role and your responsibilities, because it's more likely that your role is going to be more broad and you're going to have your hands in a lot of other things and you're going to be responsible for a lot of other things that maybe you didn't see when you worked at an investment bank. Because investment banks tend to be really siloed um, and really, you know, quite structured so that you would just be sort of looking at one piece of the business. Yeah. So, so that's one in terms of just being more flexible around your role. And then I think also just working in a more agile way, right? So most fintechs will, will actually use an agile approach to how they look at work, right? So the morning standups and the kind of the 
end of day wrap ups and the you know constant kind of iteration and let's roll something out and then fail and then try again, which is not necessarily how big banks work. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's generally the opposite of how big banks work. So taking an assessment of yourself and really thinking, is this actually how I like to work? Do I like that kind of agile environment? Do I like, am I comfortable with failure? Am mm -hmm. I comfortable with sort of this constant feedback environment? Or do I like something that's more structured, more more the waterfall approach, more top down? So I think those are two, two big aspects of working in fintech that's different from banking. And, and maybe you've got similar types of comments from your podcast last week or your event last week. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, do you do applicants need to really change their CV completely? I mean, do they have to demonstrate in their CV? How do you even demonstrate in your CV that you are for agile environments? Well, if you have some examples of where you've worked on an agile project, um, and certainly including that wording in the resume is useful. Um, if you've done some formal training, right? So the PMP is kind of less focused on agile, but I know there's other certifications that can help to demonstrate that you've done some some training around agile and working in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, really trying to demonstrate that you've got some specific examples where you've worked in that way, where you've been successful um, will be the most impactful. And then what is the interview process like compared between the two? I'm guessing for larger corporations, uh, banks, it's a lot more tedious, multiple interviews, whereas fintech is a lot more agile. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So <laughs> with banks, it's usually a lot more structured. So there'll be a minimum number of people that you need to meet. You'll need to meet you know, people of a certain seniority, and there'll often be a more complex decision-making process and approval process to get the headcount and the role approved and all these sorts of things. Whereas I think with fintechs, they are a lot more flexible in terms of if they see a strong candidate, even if they don't necessarily have the right role for that person at that time, they may just bring them in and find something for them to do, right? Create something for them to do because they know that it's not every day that you have access to great talent. Mm -hmm. um, I also think the interview process is definitely shorter as well. That's both good and bad, right? I think, yeah. I think some fintechs can have a more um, consistent and coherent interview process. And you know, sometimes, especially with startups, they struggle with turnover. And that's a challenge, right? Because you only have so much headcount and every role is really precious because you only have so much funding when you're at a startup. So you need oh, to yeah. make sure that the person that you're bringing in is the right person and is going to be able to contribute across, across the whole piece. So getting it right at point of hire is another thing I often say, getting it right at point of hire is really critical. Um, so you know, having maybe a more robust interview process would not be a bad idea, mm -hmm. but generally, yeah, it's much, much more quick at, uh, at a fintech. And do you see a lot of applicants that switch between the two? Like, is it hard to do to go from fintech to banking or banking to a smaller fintech? I, I have seen people who have gone from bank to fintech and then back to banking because yeah. they realize that working in a fintech is not for them. That's why I mentioned before around thinking about the environment that you like to work in and whether or not it's really the right culture for you, whether or not it really motivates you to work in a different style. So I have seen that. I, I can say I've seen people switch back and forth a lot, um, but I have seen people go into fintech, realize it's not for them, and then go back into banking. What about the other way around? Less so. Okay. Yeah, less so. And... You mentioned higher turnover for smaller companies. 
Have you seen that recently because of COVID-19? Are you working on any projects with high turnover or dealing with um, redundancies? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been focusing on with my HR consultant hat on recently is working with companies to think about what does the future look like, right? What, what does our organization look like after this is all over? And a lot of companies have been struggling, right, because of the impact of not just COVID-19, but the protests as well mm. in Hong Kong, uh, what's happening between the U.S. and China, what's now happening with between China and Hong Kong. So there's a lot of different factors that are impacting business. And there's the obvious ones around, you know, tourism, F&B, aviation, but even within professional services and financial services, although they're not being as overt about it, they're all thinking about what does a business look like in a few months' time? And that often means restructuring or redundancies because um, of the impact to the balance sheet and they're just not able to kind of keep the headcount that they currently have. So there's a few things factoring into that. One, obviously the government has announced different initiatives to help companies, right? The yep. Employees Support yes. Scheme, uh, which is happening this month and the second tranche later in the year. And so with that, employers are not allowed to make employees redundant, but a lot of them are making plans right? Especially if things don't change in the second half of the year, there's a lot of uncertainty still, even in Hong Kong in the second half of the year. So a lot of uh, clients that I'm speaking with now are just thinking about what are the options? How do we do this in a way that's you know fair and equitable to our employees? Or how can we avoid doing this if there is a way that we can retain people? Because your business, you know, the kind of hire, fire, fast mentality doesn't doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And when your business recovers, you still want to have great talent on your team. So just thinking through options around that as well is one of the things I've been focused on recently. How should applicants really take this news? Can they adjust themselves to better position themselves? Or, I mean, I guess better position themselves when companies recover. Mm -hmm. How should applicants be reacting? So I think, so are you referring to applicants maybe who've lost lost their job or who- Who are searching right now. Just searching right now. Yeah. I think, so the market in Hong Kong, from my understanding, speaking with kind of my network and various headhunters and things is, obviously it's been very quiet this first half of the year. They are starting to see some some green shoots and I've got a lot of kind of anecdotal examples of people finding roles over the past couple Probably the past two months, okay. uh, a number of candidates have found roles, which is really exciting. Um, but I, I still think the market's challenging. So if you're looking for a role now, then I, again, it goes back to what's what's the reason? What's your why of why, of why you're looking, right? Mm -hmm. um, are you really, really unhappy in your current position, in which case you might have a really big push factor to move? Um, but think about your risk appetite, right? Is now really the right time yeah. to move given the uncertainty uh, in in the rest of the year? Because you don't want to be in a position where you're sort of first in or last in, first out mm -hmm. uh, if a company does decide to do a restructure or you don't want to be in the, in the process of moving and the company that you're moving to has decided, oh, actually, we're going to pull all offers or we're going to, you know, we're going to do a restructuring so we can't bring you in. So, yeah. so that, that's one piece is just thinking really through the why of, of why you want to move now. And I think, you know, another thing that is important for companies is, again, back to what I was saying before around people being able to, to work across different functions and willing to kind of get involved in a lot of different things, more of a, a generalist, right? Because 
because companies will be so focused on cost, right, that whomever they bring in, they probably want them to do a number of different things. So making yourself a little bit more of a generalist, whether that's doing some upskilling during this time, taking some courses on you know LinkedIn Learning or General Assembly or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, or even just working within your network with your mentors um, to kind of think about what are you really good at, what are really your strengths, um, and focusing on those things. So aside from these redundancy projects um, and career coaching, are you also doing any CSR? Yeah, so actually I'm a volunteer coach with Recruiters Give Back, which is an initiative started by another career coach here in Hong Kong. And it's a completely free platform for people who've been impacted by job loss, uh, both here in Hong Kong and around the world. And it's got a lot of resources around you know, resumes and interviewing. And if you want to speak to a career coach because you need some additional help, then you can contact Recruiters Give Back and be connected with myself or one of the other volunteer coaches. So it's just an initiative to you know, help people during mm-hmm. this really challenging time. Um, you know, one of the things I often say to, to companies is this is not a normal time. So if you're letting employees go and in the past you've maybe not given them any support to help them with that transition, now is the time to rethink that because they're going out into a market that's really very challenging. So if you can offer them coaching, if you can offer them outplacement, if you can set up an alumni network, any of these kinds of things to help your employees and recruiters give back is one of those types of things that they can utilize. Awesome. My last question really is, I mean, you've given us so much great value, tips and advice. I'm assuming that some of our listeners will want to learn more and connect with you. You are a career coach. Uh, How can people learn more and connect with you? Yeah, sure. So people can always find me on my website, which is rchrconsulting.com. Uh, or on LinkedIn. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. I do a lot of writing, post a lot of content. So people can connect with me on LinkedIn at Renee Conklin. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you, Thomas. Thomas.